This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Hello, and welcome to Developer Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and today on the show, we welcome Claudia Misale, researcher at the IBM Watson Research Center, and previously, she got her PhD in informatics in Italy. Claudia and I work together on really cool converged computing projects, and I'm so thrilled to have her on the show today to learn more about her story. So Claudia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm so glad to be here. Let's go back in time and start with maybe your training. Can you take us back as far as you like, maybe university, college days, if those are even the right terms, and tell us how you got interested in research, informatics, or programming? Yeah, so I can go back into very like two points in time based on your question, like how did I get into informatics, computer science, and all that stuff. So I can go back in time as like in the 90s or a little closer when I was more like, you know, teenage uh, years. So, well, I, I've always loved computers since my dad started introducing them at home or since I started seeing him using computers at, at his office. So I always liked that thing, hanging out there and always wanted to, you know, try stuff. And once we got the first computer at home, it was, yeah, early 90s, floppy disk and all that stuff. So that was medieval age in terms of computer computing. So that's where I understood that that was what I wanted to do in my life. Writing programs for computers, that's, that's something that I wrote an essay at school. So that's like written in stone. I decided that when I was very, very young. So then there was quite natural for me to get a role in computer science degree at the university. So in, in Italy, that's where I'm from. And it's a little different from the United States, which I'm still trying to figure out how the United States system works. So I will not try to compare, like make a parallelism between the two. So basically in Italy, after high school, you decide if you want to go or not to the university. And then the first three years, you study and get the bachelor degree. Then you can continue and get a master's degree, and that's two years. And then after that, after you graduate for the master's, you can go ahead with PhD if you want. So that's what I did. My bachelor and master, they were in computer science, and I studied at the University of Calabria. So that's the, the first part of my, my studies. And then for the PhD, I moved to Torino. So I studied at the University of Turin and I had the four years uh, program to get the, the PhD. And that was also, of course, uh, targeting uh, computer science and, and more specifically about distributed computing and parallel programming models because yeah, that, that's something that I thought I was liking more than any other things that I've studied throughout the five years of bachelor and master's. So I thought that I was interested in going deeper into those subjects. So I packed and went to Turing where there was a very strong 
research team about parallel programming. And yeah, that's where I understood that that was what I liked to do. And research was also something that I preferred much more over going to work for, you know, anything else that could be, you know, I don't know, websites or whatever. But those are not things that were exciting me at all. So I thought that maybe research was more on my on my likings. And yeah, I, I guess I, I was right, at least on something. And yeah, and that's pretty much my my path, yeah, for about studies. Gotcha. Let me try to answer a question that you sort of asked. I will probably like get this wrong. So in the okay. United <laughs> in the United <laughs> States, we have 12 years of I guess I'll call it like primary school. So you have like grade school, elementary school, high school. It sounds like from your variant of high school, you go right into a university mm-hmm. or a graduate program. We call it college and we first go to college. And that is usually four years, unless you have like some reason that you need to extend it or I don't know, you're like really, really smart and you finish it in three years. Then okay. from college, after that is when you say, okay, do I want graduate training? So do I want to go to graduate school and get a master's or a PhD? But there's very, there's many non-traditional paths. So for example, you can graduate college and go work for a few years and then come back. So yeah, it's weird. I'm, I am not totally convinced those four years of college are super useful because I, you know, you can look around and see lots of your peers kind of just like partying and getting through it, but it is what <laughs> oh, it is. Well, that- <laughs> but that doesn't mean we were not partying, you know, they can still squeeze in those fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, something that definitely is different is for the the PhD program. Got to understand that here in the States, you can do master and PhD all at once. So you kind of merge, blend the two things. In my case, that's not possible. You have to graduate master before you do the PhD. So that's kind of a big, biggest, I guess, difference. But otherwise, I guess it's pretty much the same stuff. You graduate and do PhD and then you find your spot in the world. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I guess you're right. When I went to my PhD program, it just like so happened that like along the way, like I'm like, I'm like a little traveler on a path and like someone like threw a master's degree at my head. Like I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have to consider that. <laughs> I love how you talked about the 90s as like the middle ages when we had floppy disks. I suppose that makes me like a medieval knight or something. So I like to ask this question mostly because it's fun. Do you remember what your first computer was? And then like the first programs or games that you that you like to use? I think it was the Olivetti machine. Olivetti is a brand that is unfortunately quite dead. It was, I don't know, like the... IBM of computers in Italy uh, in the 90th, 90th century. So they've been quite big innovators. So like the first personal computers that all this stuff. So uh, Olivetti was kind of a big thing. So if anyone is interested, it sh- definitely should take a look at that. And there are several also documentaries to see how that unfortunately ended as well. But it, anyway, that doesn't stunt the topic. They were also producing computers in the in the 90s and they didn't have their own, you know, processors and stuff. So it was like an Intel processor with packed into this Olivetti machine. And it was MS-DOS. That's the first thing that I saw in my life. So that's definitely something that 
I do remember pretty well. And also the nice briefcase, it was pink. It was beautiful with all the floppy disks to install the operating system. That was like beautiful. <laughs> and I mean, other than other than the playing with installation and, and stuff, that was more the infrastructure part. But then there were games that we were playing with my dad. My dad and I were trying to, you know, figure out what, what are the things that you can do with these machines? And one of those games that I remember that I loved was called Bumper. I, I think it's Bumper. And it was like a little ball that was jumping, like, you know, those jumping balls that, you know, that they, they give them to kids and you throw them at in your house and destroy everything. So that that kind of ball. And it has several levels of difficulties and you have to jump into things and try to escape from the the dangerous room where this bumper ball was. So it was kind of a, you know, Super Mario, but without Super Mario, no. The, the same obstacles and, uh, and stuff and you would need to escape from each of those little worlds in the bumper universe and try to survive. So we were playing that a lot. Arkanoid as well. Then there was another similar to Super Mario Crystal, I think was the name. That was beautiful too. And it was this little minor man and you had to escape from each level uh, in, the, in the minor universe and you know escape from the mines and you know, create your own path out of that. And that was beautiful too too and you collect all the diamonds and stuff that was beautiful one of the best games ever uh, actually i want to play <laughs> again there are some questions to look for them if they they will surely exist you know all these emulators that they do yeah that's so funny i'm listening here and um i'm having like the same flashbacks and being like oh i really mm -hmm. want to play that actually just i think it was just yesterday so there's this package new package manner from prefix.dev called pixie and they demoed running Doom from which okay. is on Anaconda. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do that. <laughs> so I I might, yeah. I, I think there might be something here. We might be able to take a new package manager and then find an easy way to, to play our old games and totally stop doing our jobs. And, you know, and yeah, that's my, that's the exactly. goal. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the reason why I stopped playing video games because it's, you know, you can get dragged into. <laughs> into them quite easily so I, I'm like okay I don't install anything I don't buy anything so I know uh, I will not you know spend too much time there yeah I, I guess you know exactly what I'm talking about and um, yeah when I was still I think doing my master's at that point I had kind of a better laptop that was slightly more performant than you know single core machine but the multi multi-core machines were kind of on the rise at that point in time and we could buy them uh, with a, the form of a laptop the other fellow students and, and myself we would play a lot of video games call of duty or all other stuff that we could play online against each other or also you know the sims and all those games where you can spend a lot of time so i noticed at some point that i was spending too much time and i said okay that's enough and that's where i completed my career in video games and yeah but i mean that's i think i should probably get back to that
because it's not that bad if you manage to, you know, I with empathize. a certain time. Yeah. I empathize so strongly. I had to make like a con well, it was it was sort of a conscious decision. Like I could spend just like the time that I got home in college, the time that I got home from dinner until like the wee hours of the morning on an MMORPG. And mm -hmm. I loved it. And I, I had to kind of step back and realize that it was preventing me from doing other things. And thankfully, I was really lucky that my laptop, which had Windows at the time, which is great for games, it just mm -hmm. totally yeah. died. Blue screen of death. I reinstalled Ubuntu. Ubuntu now you know, supports Steam and can support these games, but not as well. Mm -hmm. But that was where I was able to finally transition my, my addiction of computer games over to programming. So at least something that someone would pay me money to do, which I thought yes. was a one up. But yeah, I, yeah I think there could life. be a way to, to safely go back, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, now that, you know, with, with a job, you are forced to then go to work. So at least that's a hard stop for it. I mean, if you have to stop a game, that's definitely a good moment. To not risk the podcast topic going into computer yeah. games for the rest. Um, let me let me ask you a little change of questions. So you studied distributed computing and parallel programming models. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe just high level if they're very complex about your work and what you studied? So that, that was more of my focus on the PhD because during bachelor and master, they would teach us pretty much about anything and everything. So there was really a like, you know, a taking a master in something in, in parallel programming or I don't know, AI or something like that. In the specific, specifically where I studied, uh, the master was, didn't have a specific topic where to focus on. All, all, most of the uh, universities usually do that. Mine didn't. And I pr very much preferred not to be focusing on one specific topic because that gave me the opportunity to see more things and then with a you know at an older age after the master to figure out better what was that I really liked and so for the on the then at the during the PhD I started learning what it means to program parallel machines or distributed uh, systems so for the programming model it would be more like how a program looks like when you want to have that program run on multiple machines rather than just on a single core left on your laptop or whatever. So that means how can you parallelize the workload that you have either on multiple cores or multiple systems in case of distributed computing. So if you have a bunch of data and you want more processes or more machines to operate on those data. How do you chunk this data? And how do you synchronize those distributed or parallel entities working on this data and to, to make sure that the final result is correct? So what are the, the tools to program workloads made in such a way? And yeah, so that, op that open to a world of possibilities who is familiar with uh, high performance computing so hpc surely had at least once in their life heard about mpi uh, the message passing interface they 
standard for message passing that allows to program distributed programs or dis or parallel programs. So on the same machine or a program running on a single machine on multiple cores or, or, a, mach or a program running on multiple cores or on multiple machines. So that this MPI is something that you learn when you start studying parallel or and distributed programming models. Or other examples that that's something that I focused on the PhD is something a little bit more, I'd say, modern. The MPI is like 30 plus years old, but stuff like Apache Spark for big data programming, that's more newer. I think it's probably, I don't know, 10 years or something. Um, don't, don't trust this number, but overall, that should be the ballpark. So that's a framework or a tool to that allows data scientists to run their workload. Could be machine learning workload or just like MapReduce operations analysis on data that needs to have to apply the same a bunch of operations on a big chunk of data that's why called big data and and do this operation in a distributed way so what spark did that was pretty new and innovative for it when when it came out uh, was to give the user a very very simplified programming interface to write programs that look like sequential ones so the very simple one where you don't need to worry about communicating and synchronizing parallel pro and distributed processes. So you would like, you would write the program as it is a sequential meaning running on a single core, single thread, stuff like that. And the, the runtime, Spark's runtime automatically would run this thing in this on distributed machines and also figure out how to create those distributed processes to process the data that you want them to process and also the the uh, how the data would be chunked and spread across those distributed processes or called workers so that spark would manage all of that so that's what a person studying parallel and distributed programming models would worry about like how do i create a library or toolkit, a framework, something that would make a scientist's life easier to write a program that would automatically run in parallel or on distributed systems. So whatever is in between, like right below, or not even that, even start from, from the API down to the uh, to the hardware, that's what a person studying parallel and distributed systems and programming model for them would do. So, of course, this is a huge, incredibly huge area of research that has been on forever, basically. So it's not that you're really inventing anything at this point, but there is always a lot to do and a lot of research that you can do. And you can, of course, have a lot of fun. Uh, I had a lot of fun. And so, yeah, I guess that's, I hope that kind of gives an idea of what, of what I've been studying. That's a great overview. And I would love to talk about MPI a little more. So the context that I learned about MPI, my first interaction was in high-performance computing. 
And it was specifically developing for Singularity, which is container technology. And unfortunately, the first sense that I got of it was, wasn't a great one. So MPI had a ton of ABI or application binary interface issues with containers. And for the most part, it would sort of be like, well, <laughs> make sure that the conversion of MPI in the container is the same as the one on the outside. And that would solve a lot of issues, but it wasn't until really, I'd probably actually probably our work last year when we were running lamps that I mm -hmm. really used MPI and I started to see the real complexity of the space. So not just yeah. like the, the yeah. software, not just like whether you're installing open MPI or MPitch or Intel MPI or any of these other vendor specific MPIs, but just how sensitive what you were doing was to environment variables and flags and then you know, then you'd use things like PMIX and that quote error messages would essentially be your terminal vomiting on you. And it was just a, sort, sort of as a new user, it was like, oh my God, this is really challenging. And then I've sort of come to realize that MPI is really this bread and butter for high performance computing. Like I'm looking across this catalog of proxy apps and like 90% of them are doing something, maybe that, that also is a rough estimate art, but it seems like most of them are doing something with MPI. So to kind of step back, when we think about distributed systems, I guess when I think of high performance computing, I definitely think of MPI. It sounds like Apache Spark is a contender. I'm wondering what sort of people in industry are most often using these days, because I get the sense that there's only a tiny bit of MPI out there, but it seems to be like this gung-ho prominent leader in HPC. But I'm wondering, are there different ways, better ways, <laughs> other ways we can try aside from MPI that would also not just maybe make that user experience better, but also help to have a more collaborative experience because kind of both sides of the, this converged computing coin might be working with the same technology? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I see the point of MPI being complicated to use, and I absolutely agree with that. It's not like you see it for the first time and then everything works. So it, there is a lot of complexity in making those things. When it comes to using that in containers, that's something that I've recently done, recently in the past three years or something. As you were mentioning, the application lamps and other HPC benchmarks. So, and, and that was also when more complexity is being added when we want to use these things in cloud environment that are not plain virtual machines, but when you put also this, these things called Kubernetes in, in the mix, that's where things like start to, oh my God, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But yeah, I think, yeah, I, I totally agree when you say that the, the group of people using MPI, since, I mean, people like re research areas where, MPI is still used a lot, it seems to be more shrinking a little bit. Even the new things where computing is focusing on, like AI, there are other programming models that resonate more rather than MPI, for instance, which doesn't seem to find a fit into the AI universe where other things like PyTorch make more sense. And even there, the programming model is definitely different than MPI. There's no message passing happening between processes, but is really the, the, the kind of computation that drives what the programming model is. I guess in institutions like the national labs or the universities doing 
kind of old fashioned, let's say HPC, that's probably where an MPI still has a lot of traction. But outside, I'm seeing other than than that into this new predominant research areas, we're all seeing that this is kind of fading a little bit away. But despite that, I have to say that I still use it a lot, especially for benchmarking. So I we we all still see that. I mean, it's not going to die anytime soon, for sure. Yeah, I can imagine it being one of those stories. Like everyone keeps seeing saying that Fortran is going to go away, but Fortran has not gone away. Yeah, yeah. We all say those things and then they come back. Everything comes back at some point. Exactly. So just for our listeners, when we say lamps, we are not talking about the light kind that you put in your apartment. That's a fair fair point. You know, I never thought about. No, I realized I said it. I was like, they're going to be like, what? Why is she talking about lamps? So lamps means large scale atomic molecular massively parallel simulator. And we are talking about it because it's using MPI under the hood, and it's particularly good at just being used as sort of a an app to get a sense of how well the latency of a system is. So a low latency system is going to have a LAMPS run that is much quicker than one that is not. So you talk about kind of these new emerging programming models for distributed computing. I think that's based on another idea that you talked about that I really like is just this idea that there's patterns of doing things. So I'm wondering if we can talk about some of those patterns. One of them for me that comes to mind, and I don't I don't know if this is a distributed computing pattern, but I've seen it in machine learning frameworks, is one where there's sort of a launcher and worker model, where the launcher is basically orchestrating work to the workers. And that's kind of nice because it means that a worker could potentially die, go away, but the launcher can see that and then create another worker. And it seems like in that design, there's sort of a trade-off between that performance that we're used to in HPC with MPI, but having portability and then flexibility. So if you're running, for example, on Kubernetes, you can have the scale of your cluster go up and down, and that's not going to destroy something versus dynamism in MPI is like not a thing. So is, is that an example yeah. of one of these models? And is, mm-hmm. is that sort of a direction that you think as we move some of these HPC things, apps, whatever they're called, <laughs> over to more cloud native approaches, more kind of things that people in industry are doing, should we consider some of these different kinds of models for what we're currently doing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting how, how you say apps as they are calling them now which is absolutely spot on. Uh, I don't know when this happened, but also I started calling things apps one before, I don't know when this switch happened uh, in my brain too, before they were programs and now they're apps, which is kind of, I don't know, weird. <laughs> and because this is like, the I think that at least for me, it happened once I started moving more into cloud computing. And that's where the term app is used more. And or at least I think that's the point in time where I started hearing that term more. And that's when the software and programs became all apps. So that's also something like a transition into, I don't know, something different from what we've been used to hear or how we've been used to describe things before. For me, before, after, and now perspective, I surely am not like a very 
you know, I, I haven't been doing computing for that many years. So I'm, I'm still uh, you know, relatively young in that sense. So there are, of course, people with way more experience than, than I have. But, you know, I'm just trying to talk about, you know, my, my experience and my time, my life in computing. But for, you know, for this short time, because it's very short since I started working is like now six years. So that that's my, I would say, my lifetime into computer science that is outside of the, you know, university and college and stuff. So in this short time frame, I've seen those changes happening. And I also like the, uh, how you were describing the launcher and workers model, which had different names in the past when I was at college. Now we're trying to get rid of, you know, this master worker terminology, but launcher and executors, that, that still works. So th this model is something that has been, uh, I think it started for what I've been exposed to in my computing computing life started to resonate more with also with with let's go back to to spark that's also that kind of model uh, which also is present in, in in mpi because you know you have the masters and the workers so that model is still there but uh is a, li a little bit different in, in those in these new frameworks for computing and one latest example i guess we can mention is Apache Ray, which follows exactly this model. So there is a launcher that is in charge of distributing the computation, create or destroy executor, and figuring out how to partition the, the workload among them. And that's absolutely uh, key, I, I think, when it comes also to run on, on cloud platforms, not only virtual machines, but also on those new new newish platform like kubernetes and this is definitely a good model because as you were as you were saying those new on cloud you care about being able to recover from crashes or be being elastic so that you can grow resources or you can shrink them down so you want your the, the tools that you're using to be able to manage that without you doing anything. So the idea is like, I push the button, I go on vacation, I come back and everything just works smoothly because that framework figured out all those things for me. So that's definitely something that I don't think we're ever, we're not going to get rid of this, uh, of this model. And it also is one thing that is prominent is also the you know switching to more use programming languages that are more used now rather than before like mpi you would program mostly in c c plus plus now you use python also for mpi but for all those other programs like ai programs you know this machine learning stuff and training inference programs or apps they are, they are all python and the good thing is that you can easily distribute Python code, like ship functions here and there, and they can just run on different machines. Quite way easier than what you could do with C++, for instance. So Python is definitely something that is simplifying everyone's life when it comes to programming and running apps in on cloud and distributed systems.
So you couldn't hear me, but when you said just oh. push the button and go on vacation, I laughed <laughs> like really loudly because because mostly when I think of cloud and whenever I've run experiments on the cloud, that would be an absolutely terrifying thing to do just, just because yeah. of the cost. <laughs> but the idea, the <laughs> idea of actually doing that, like put like, okay, the cluster's up. I'm going to be back in two weeks and I'll just see that if I still have my retirement savings when I get back. Anyway. I, yeah. I yeah. Assuming you really have <laughs> yeah, unlimited money uh, or that the tools that you're using will then shut down all the yeah, resources yeah. and clean up and you're good uh, while still enjoying your margarita on the beach oh yeah and you know I, I have that money tree out back so I'm 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 totally all set. you're good <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. that's all you need <laughs> and I I think I hear what you also saying when you're talking about Python is that we really need to kind of meet the developer user where they're at and a lot of these sort of quote old school I'll, I'll nicely call them languages they are really good at specific things, but they're also a lot harder to use. They're also a lot harder to kind of move between, you know, places in some of these models and they actually add more complexity. And, and so, yeah, I'm sort of on the same bandwagon and I have to kind of say this carefully because I don't want to wake up one day and have an, an army of angry Fortran users outside my door. But I do think there's something- no, we to... love all programming languages. We love all programming languages, but there are other ones that I that I think- They easier. Yeah. Are kind of easier to use and I would be excited to use them. Please don't come yeah. and, and kill me Fortran. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, don't, don't kill, don't kill <laughs> Vanessa, don't kill us. We, we love everyone. We love all of you. Everyone of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned you mentioned Kubernetes. And I wanna I wanna briefly talk about that. So the work that we've been doing together in our amazing collaboration is about this thing that we call converged computing. Can you tell our listeners about converged computing? Yes. So we want to take all the good stuff that you can run on in the HPC universe, take that and run that on cloud. And with possibly the same feature of you push the button and go on vacation. This means that you, what we try to do is to get what is, I mean, the, all the best things that you can find in the HPC universe and merge them with all the great things that come from, from cloud computing. And the, union of those two universes, if that exists, is complicated. And there are so many things that are missing in one place and one, and so many things that are missing in the other one. So we're trying to bridge that gap between those two universes and provide and give HPC users a way to run the workload they are used to run on, on premises systems, into the cloud so that they could have the same or even better and an even better user experience while getting the same performance. There are many challenges that we've been tackling and the open space is big. <laughs> and so in specifically in collaboration that, that we had, that we're still having, when we started this trying to merge HPC and cloud, specifically as HPC and Kubernetes, uh, we started by tackling a, the scheduling part. So given Kubernetes, which is not a platform that targets HPC application is for cloud native application and microservices. 
So can we use this platform, which has a lot of great things to run HPC workloads? And among all the things that, that needs to be done, we started with implement exporting a scheduler that is that is being implemented and is still implemented and maintained by uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, where Vanessa is. So we took that and we packaged into a plugin scheduler for Kubernetes, and we tried to you know improve overall system performance, which was quite reduced because of poor scheduling decisions taken by the default Kubernetes scheduler. When, and when I say for scheduling decisions, I don't want to say that the scheduler is bad, the default one. It, it targets a different problem. So it's like you want to fit a, you know, those wooden toys, a square one into a round hole. So it's like they do different things. They are shaped for different things. And the, the challenge is to augment. I don't want to say the term improve because I don't think that's the right one, but to augment Kubernetes so that also those new workloads, new or all their workloads could be run on, on this platform. And I mean, we're, I'm talking about Kubernetes, but it's not really just about Kubernetes. This is the main platform that we are targeting, I think, but cloud is best and there's so many things that need work for HPC. So I hope that kind of gives an overview of what we've been uh, working on together. Well said, and I totally agree that there are many things and many different kind of places we could kind of insert these technologies or even just a scheduler. We've been talking a lot about the technical challenges in the converged computing space. Can you reflect on what the cultural challenges are? Yes. Absolutely. Not all of us have been exposed to Kubernetes. So when I have to, you know, try to introduce this machinery to to someone who's new to that, I always try to to convince them that they have to forget about what they were used to do because here everything is different. You were submitted a job, you're not doing that anymore. You want to SSH on the machine, you don't do that anymore. So whatever you were used to do, no, forget. You're not doing that. You have to switch mindset and try to, you know, be open to to embrace these new patterns and execution models that are not necessarily what they are were used to. Even though, I mean, it's not, I don't want to say that this is like overly complicated because because that's not, I think, and then that that's not the point really, but it, it's relatively easy to use once you try a few things first. You have to, you know, try to be open to make mistakes and try to figure out what is different from what you were used to and how are those new things working together to make this cloud or this Kubernetes platform. So there is, I've been seeing a lot of resistance from other resources of people, you know, but I think it's not the fear of new because I don't think we are scared of new things. At least, that, you know, in any research place, I don't think people are scared of new things. That's because I don't think that's our nature. But it's more like, you know, you have to try to adapt to new models and see if those make sense to you or not. But if 
something is really working for you that has been working for you in the past for many, many years, then of course there is this clash of, oh, no, I don't want to use that. Why, why would I use that? So, you know, trying to make the point of why you would like to give it a try, that's something that sometimes takes some time. But, you know, it's also that part of the challenge of trying new things, I guess. Totally agree. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few questions. Mm -hmm. So after studying in Italy, there must have been some point where you had to come to the United States and there must have been like a shock, a culture shock, something. Can you tell us what it's been like to transition to working here and what you like and what you dislike? Yeah. When I was doing the PhD, we've been given the opportunity to try and apply for internship at IBM Research, where I'm currently working. Um, I'm saying given the opportunity, because this is not something that is very common in Italy. Uh, You don't really do internships. So you don't go do these months in some company work and then come back. If you do that, it's usually then connected to your uh, PhD. So the thesis is connected to that and all that stuff. Uh, so I think it's, that's coming becoming more common now to give the students a chance to go and somewhere in Europe at least and do some months in companies. But that was not something that was really a thing when I was doing the PhD. So my PhD advisor, uh, Marco Dinucci, he one of his old co-workers was a manager at IBM at the time. So he said that there was this internship thing you can apply for for a position. So you send your CV and then maybe they call you, you do the interviews and then maybe you get a position. So that's what I, what I did along with another student. Uh, so we both got a, a position as interns. So we both went there, had this six months internship, which was pretty long with respect to the usual one because we don't have to, you know, take classes and stuff. So we could stay longer. So we did this six months. The internship was basically working Monday, Friday for, you know, nine to five, let's say, uh, which is always more for the internship. And then in the evening and in the weekend, you work for the PhD. So after those six months, I was completely like, okay, that's enough. I hate this. I just want to go home, finish this PhD. I'll never come back to the state. So it was it was so stressful and so you know uh, overwhelming that I said I, I I didn't want to come back here. I didn't like it. It was was just too much. So I said, okay, I'll never come back. And then my manager. IBM manager during the internship who is my manager now so they he made me an offer to come back after I graduate and I was like okay whatever forget about all I said I'll never come back I'm I'm back Um, and because the job offer was to do exactly what I studied for and what I love so it was like this is something that I have to take so with a new mindset, I came back to the States and this time I liked the States more than before. Nothing wrong with the States, really. That's not what I'm trying to say. Is that the first time it was just too much happening and I couldn't really, you know, enjoy life. It's been tough six months. But now that you know I have my job, I have my house, I have my cat, I have my you know, my stuff, my lifestyle. That's a completely better situation. And even though there is, of course, the cultural clash, 
but that doesn't bother me really anymore. The beginning is always a shock because I, I was born in Italy and grew up. I stayed there for 30 years and then I moved here. So I have 30 years of Italy and just six of U.S. So of course there is something, there are more things that I'm used to in a different way than how things are here in the States. But you know, it's after the first year maybe or so where you complain about things like oh the food is better or whatever is better I like more but here I don't know tomatoes are not good or you know this kind of things pizza is not good which is not true then you realize that you can adjust and just live your life happy and properly of course when I go back home I love food and I'm always like oh how how is that I was able to survive without all these delicious things but then I, I want to come back here because now this is my home. And I mean, it's just, you know, how to, uh, we were saying before about try to embrace the, what is new. That works with Kubernetes and that works in life as well. If you're willing to adjust, you can just do that. Unless, you know, horrible things happen, but they didn't. So which is good, I don't complain. But yeah, I mean, of course, cultural clash, but I survived that, so yes. That is very well stated. And there might be something with those tomatoes. You know, recently I had someone who also is not from the U.S. talk about tomatoes. So there might be something there. And I think- Yeah, it must be something. (laughs) something. I can empathize with what you're saying. And I think most of our listeners can. It's just the case that change is hard. Going into a new environment and then doing something new is really hard. And it's really great that you were brave and you said, you know what, I'm going to push myself to do this because this is what I love. And I'm really glad to hear that it it turned out great like that. So we are on time, but I want to ask you one more question. I know that you have a kitty and I also know that you practice judo. And so I'm interested, can you talk about what you like to do in your free time when you're not doing this tech stuff? Yeah, so I feed my cat and uh, try to keep her out of trouble uh, with this outdoor cat that is bothering her uh, lately. So we have this, you know, fight, uh, neighborhood fight, cat fight. So that's one thing that uh, keeps me occupied. And then what else do I do? So I, I like baking a lot. So I try to, you know, cook some stuff, desserts mostly. Then I try very hard to play some music when I manage, which is something I'm failing miserably because there's always something else. And, and then, yeah, it's not ju- judo, it's uh, jujitsu, but whatever, doesn't matter. That's my other passion. And for that one, I always manage to find time. <laughs> like, okay, it's time to go training. Okay, close everything and run to class. And it's also a sport where you have to use a lot your brain. So it's not really just about, you know, going wild with submissions and stuff. It's like a puzzle that you have to solve. Have you ever heard a cat fight outside and then gone outside and then got into a, a rolling match, uh, practiced jujitsu on the other cat. I practiced jujitsu with my cat, but she got the, yeah, she won. As I was trying to take her out of the window as she was fighting with the other cat. So there was a, an actual window in between them. But yeah, while I was trying to take my cat out of the window, she absolutely knocked me down and... Yeah, there was some, you know, scratches and stuff. So if I, I will not try to engage into a jujitsu fight with my cat anymore. 
Oh yeah, you you need to you need to grow some talents first to make it a fair fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I cannot compete with with her for sure. <laughs> well, Claudia, it was so fun having you on the show. I absolutely love our work and I love working with you. I'm so glad it's going to continue working on Fluence and hopefully other projects. Um, yep. I am looking forward to all of that. And yeah, I thank you so much for, for being on the show today. We'll chat next week. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I mean, we've been working together and I always love talking to, to you and the rest of the team. So thank you so, so much. That was, that was super fun.